Welcome to the Care Exchange, the Skills Skill for Care podcast for managers and social care. I'm Pierre F. J. Burton. And I'm Wendy Adams. Today we are launching series four of the Care Exchange and we have Neil Eastwood as a guest on this live episode of the podcast. So Neil is an international speaker on recruitment and retention on frontline staff in social care. If you have been to any kind of social care conference in the last few years, you have most likely seen Neil talk about recruitment and retention. Neil is also the author of the best-selling book, Saving Social Care, that was published in 2017. Neil has very recently published the second edition, Saving Social Care. Neil is also the founder and CEO of Care Friends, the employee referral app for social care in partnership with Skills for Care. Earlier this year, Care Friends won the 2023 King's Award for innovation for the Care Friends app. This is to recognise commercial success, and it's one of the UK's most prestigious business awards. Today is a special episode of the Care Exchange as we have a live audience listening to our conversation. So thank you to everybody who have joined us live. If you've joined us live, you'll know that we asked you if you had any questions for our guest. Thank you for all of your suggestions, and we will be incorporating those into our conversation today. So on with the show. So welcome, Neil, to the Care Exchange. Thank you. Uh, yeah, delighted to be here. Thanks for inviting me. And uh, yeah, I'm dialing in from Waterloo, the London one, not the Belgian one. <laughs> <laughs> so we heard the introductions that you very recently published the second edition of the Saving Social Care book. Why have you published a second edition? Well, yeah, that's, that's a good question. I think, first of all, I, I, maybe I should clarify what a second edition actually means, uh, because it's not a new book. And interestingly, like uh, writing a book, you learn there's a lot of rules that you didn't know about books uh, and writing them. And interestingly, a second edition means that you have to have between 15 and 30 percent new content. So below 15, people complain, why have, why have I bought this again? And over 30, it's a different book. So I think that's the, fir the first thing to say. <laughs> and I, I actually found writing the book really, really difficult, the, the 2017 one. It was a bit easier this time around. And, um, you know, I wondered, what, why would I go through all of that again? And I think there are, there are probably three reasons. Um, firstly, it was six years now since the first edition, and I continued to find really cool ideas and tips and tricks from all of my connections around the world and in the UK. And I really wanted to kind of update it with those. And then I think secondly, um, the recruitment and retention world has like completely shifted on its axis in the last, uh, in adult social care in the last um, uh, six years. I think you, you guys will probably agree as well. It's so, an awful lot of changes happened for yeah. workforce and, and, and social care has a lot of surface area that exposes it to risk in, in terms of workforce. So, so, um, I mean, for example, I think there are generational changes. So when I wrote the book in 2017, Generation Z, Z is, was just entering the workplace. So the kind of 20-year-old was the oldest you could be. Uh, and, of course, six years later, now the workforce is full of them. Yeah. So I think we've seen it. Well, we may unpack that a little more. We've seen some uh, like a different worker-employer relationship. I'm sure employers will agree. And then there's been sort of as well as that incremental kind of ch generational change and the increase in demand, of course, there's been some sudden changes like COVID, Brexit, cost of living crisis. Mm. And I think as well, the rapid adoption of 
of technology and policy change and so on. And I think thirdly, then, the the first book was mostly about recruitment because I thought stupidly I was going to write two books, one on recruitment and one on retention. And I kind of got halfway <laughs> through and thought, ouch. And so I squished <laughs> in uh, some retention at the end. And I, I always thought I needed to do more. So so the the second book is packed much more, is more emphasis on the retention side. So and um, we will we'll talk a little bit more about retention a little bit later. Um so just you know jumping into it. So who should social care employers be thinking about targeting when they are recruiting? I think it's a it's a fascinating question because it, it, it that encapsulates really the secret. <laughs> the secret to everything and I think you know my answer would be what sounds slightly contradictory is you you need a, a very narrow focus and you also need a wide focus and what I mean is that we need to only target people with the right values uh, which is a narrow focus uh, and there aren't you know not everybody out there and certainly not every active job seeker fits that criterion but we have to stay absolutely committed to that. Otherwise, it's broadly you know, pointless and a waste of time and driving staff turnover. But we also, at the same time, need a very wide sort of emphasis or focus. And I mean that in terms of using a mix of recruitment channels, not over-relying on one. Uh, and uh, so we're trying to reach as many different people as possible. And that would mean diversifying the range of people we're appealing to. Uh, I mean, obviously, younger people and men are two examples of that. Uh, but I'm a real fan of lived experience. And, uh, for example, particularly what came out of the research is family care experience. And that it doesn't mean you have to be older to have that because some wonderful uh, under 25s, if we pick that that group in social care, many, many of them have a brother or sister with a disability, have cared for mum or dad, have been brought up by grandparents. In fact, my my dad um, was 50 when he had me and the kids at school said, oh, your parents were killed in a crash and you, it's your grandparents bring you up and they're not going to tell you. Odd. So oh, really odd. <laughs> but, um, so, so, you know, I spent a lot of time around yeah. older people uh, and, yeah. you know, I might therefore be a, a better candidate for social care than perhaps, you know, it's emotional maturity, basically. And I yeah. think I think the golden thread with all of this is is values. And how how would you suggest that social care employers target those people? How how would you suggest they find those people um, in their community that might have that lived experience? Well, I think the if you're looking for values, that can seem rather an invisible thing. Um, but we can see values being demonstrated all the time, Wendy. I mean, I, I, I mean, family care experience is is my is my top example. But you know, you'd look for people who are who are volunteering, evidence of giving, evidence that they're putting someone else first in their lives, uh, and you know, that might be that they say work for a charity, or they volunteer, or they or they do something in the community for others. And I think that's a good marker. But certainly from research in the US, the family care, those with the family care as past or current are a huge group of people who have all the values that we seek. And, you know, unfortunately, with COVID has generated a lot more people who've come into that uh, group. And often they feel quite a long way from the job market and they want something. And we social care is their perfect home. And they may not be sort of actively looking for jobs. Absolutely not. No. And I think that the market is definitely moving away from active job seekers now. And we saw coming uh, through COVID, a lot of people perhaps advanced their retirement plans 
or have dropped out of the workforce for other reasons, or are re- you know, I think a lot of people I've spoken to have sort of rethought what's what am I doing? You know, when you're sort of faced with this existential change, like, am I happy with my admin job? And I think that is very much what we're seeing from the younger generation is like, what, why, why should we do this? And I think this really gives us an opportunity in the social care sector to package what we offer, which is not what the NHS offers. It's something different and uh, really compelling if we can articulate it to the right people. What are the most kind of cost-effective ways of recruiting staff? Well, I mean, I think, first of all, it's very important to understand what the costs really are. And that means a lot more a kind of measurement and awareness because people might say, well, it's free to put an ad on um, an internet job board. But um, you really need to look at the entire experience and the cost. And I always use the example of kind of cost per hour of care. Uh, And, um, uh, you know, from the kind of French example of you can spend a lot of money on clothes because if you wear them a lot, it actually cost per wear is low. And I think what we need to do is look at how many hours of care are going to be delivered from those people. Uh, And so it's not for me about a cost per hire being low or free. It's, It's about who can we get uh, who will stay a long time. And, and an example of that, which I uh, dates back a long time now, but I did a piece of work with a number of providers looking at the number of hours of care that were delivered by recruitment source. And we saw that internet job boards, it was a matter of weeks, actually, if you looked at all of like the, the, the average uh, compared to um, uh, employee referral and you know returners and so on, and some of those high quality sources where it could be years. So I think it's a really, uh, you know, we need to think about how we define cost effective. But if you want specific examples as well, then building relationships in the community, either with partners or, um, or you know, using uh, the employee networks, trying to, you know, doing outreach is something that builds a sort of bedrock and a flow of high quality people. And, you know, they can be very, very low cost. And I think, you know, asking asking people who've left you that you would like to come back to come back is another one. It's very, very low cost. You, you mentioned about active job seekers and this notion of active and passive job seekers is something you refer to in the book. Um, can you just tell us what you mean by that? Yeah, so uh, active um, job seekers are people who are kind of on the market. And that is actually a small percentage of those in the workforce um, uh, or, or looking to be in the workforce. It's it's not a huge percentage of people. And there's there's shades of kind of activity. So someone might be looking every day and, you know, absolutely determined to be gone by Friday. Um, and they're very active job seekers. And then there are people who are kind of, you know, oh, I'll casually look. But that broad group of people is certainly hugely smaller than what we now call passive or or um, uh, or hidden uh, candidates. And those are people who either are very happy in their jobs and wouldn't move for any reason. And that's actually not a huge amount. But it, it, people that aren't maybe in the take the example of social care, not wouldn't either lack the confidence or are unaware that this is a career option for them. And you almost need either someone to tell them that or us as a sector to connect with them in some way. For example, family care experience, they might come into contact with care workers and say, hey, that's an amazing job you're doing. Could I do the same? And I think it's really exciting, the opportunity for to address that passive job seeker market. Harder to re- find them initially, 
but um, much easier after that because you find people with the right values who every other employer is not chasing as well. Uh, and uh, you can make a compelling offer and then they're likely to stay much longer. So in a very simple um, way, if if all an employer is doing is advertising on internet job boards, then what they are targeting is those active job seekers and they're completely missing those those passive job seekers who don't yet know that they want to come and work for that organisation um, or don't even know that they want to work in social care. That makes perfect sense, doesn't it? Yeah, completely. And I think, you know, I don't want to trash internet job boards. It would certainly be a, a part of my recruitment mix, always will be. Um, but you're absolutely right, Wendy. What you're seeing there are two two things. One is we know that it's broadly younger people that use an internet job board rather than older. Uh, and older people would prefer a face-to-face, you know, conversation or re- recommendation or, you know, something slightly different usually. Uh, and then I think you're also finding that... Um, if you go onto an internet job board, you're faced with a search bar and you have to type something in. So are you going to type in care worker or support worker if you haven't got that in the top of your mind? And that's why we know that internet job boards feed the majority of the candidates in the UK in social care. And when you look at the uh, new entrance to social care, and this is one of our big problems uh, challenges is is around growing capacity, then you'll see that uh, I think it's only 37% of all those new starters every year actually are new to the sector. So this tells us that the internet job boards are primarily recycling existing care workers who are typing in care worker. Yeah. So I think we've got two problems there by focusing too much on one source. So you need to kind of almost use so many different types i don't you know we're not saying don't do job internet job we're just saying think about how are you in your local area attracting or connecting with what you call the the passive job seeker the the ones who don't realize they want to come and work for you so community events um um how other what are the other sort of kind of local things that you could do in terms of of recruiting those um passive job seekers yeah i mean there's a lot of in terms of you know we we know that we have to uh have a sustainable local flow of candidates and it's very much a community-based service and therefore you're looking in your local community and i would call this your recruitment recruitment hinterland so where are your existing staff living and you can draw a little line around the boundaries and that and that that's where you're recruiting from and then there are a number of things you can do. Obviously, I would say, you know, ha- uh, because of my focus on employee referral, that you have however many employees you have as a as potential recruiters. So they're sort of, you know, uh, feet on the street in terms of reaching out to people. So it's so employ- important to be an employer of choice and them actually want people to come and work for you. But there are many organizations in the local community that want to help, um, you know, uh, uh, and are very aligned with what we're doing. The NHS as well, we're sort of moving closer to them. That I think there's opportunities to, to, um, to engage with them, with hospices, with all sorts of places. And in the book, I, I can't. I've lost track of how many different places that where there are partner organisations who would actively look on your behalf. And then there's outreach itself in various forms of how can you go out into the community and meet people. Uh, and and there's been some really interesting places that you can or events and you can meet people at. You can also, if you happen to have it, it's easier if you have a setting like a residential care rather than home care, slightly trickier 
um, but you know you can have an event or bring people in from the community and I mean my favorite thing if I had a residential care setting now every summer I would have a, a dog show yeah and uh, everybody bring loves a dog yeah waggiest tail isn't it and most looks most like the owner that's my favorite one yeah and people are going there they see the atmosphere they think oh could I work here Lots of posters with QR codes. QR codes are the thing at the moment, isn't it? That it's you know easy for people to uh, to apply or find out more that kind of thing. So yeah, great idea. And I think um, yeah, sorry, just Pierre as well. One on that. I mean, um, I care ambassadors is another one where you go out into the community and actually what you're what you're targeting there is generally younger people and changing perceptions for the future. But what you find as bycatch is the parents come along and say, "Oh, that's interesting." So I think you know yeah. there's. There's kind of outreach as well as, you know, there's active and passive sources in the local community outreach. You can do either of those. Yeah. And just to explain to you, if you haven't heard of I Care Ambassador, it is um, something that Skills for Care, a uh, project that Skills for Care have been working on a number of years. We have had a little bit of a, um, we haven't done so much with it, but actually yesterday found out that we're going to do lots of lots around our care ambassador in, in the future so really excited about that so look out for that in the in skills for care communication um just going back to the beginning um and you mentioned about um doing some sort of work around working out what you know you recruit somebody how long are they how many hours of care what what are the things that people should be doing when they are recruiting in terms of reviewing their their processes review it renewing what they're doing yeah, I think I mean, I, I think that on the ma that measurement point, it's very important to measure not everything, but I think it's really important because you can track your improvements and that's motivating. So um, I think uh, the workforce really have a lot of the answers you need. So your existing workforce, I would always be asking them, what could we could do better? How would you sell a job to a friend? Um, you know, what do you think are the differences that particularly with our service or or what appeal to you about social care? And then those people who've just joined you are super valuable because they've just gone through that horrific experience of trying to apply to you. So what was that like? What could we have done better? Where, you know, uh, was there something that was really frustrating? And then if possible, people who turned you down, you know, I'd I always like to try and find out why. Um, I mean, so, for example, we did track down people who walked out on day one of training. So they'd started work and they left on the first day and uh, slightly under 20 percent of those people said no one smiled. That's why they didn't feel welcome. So I will come on to retention later. But um, I, th I think a lot of this um, uh, of improvements can be made simply making the experience of applying better and um, uh, responding quickly and courteously and listening to their story. Because I think anyone that's joining adult social care and all the listeners will have their own story about why are you doing this instead of something else? There's obviously something that's happened in their lives that this gives them intrinsic rewards. So the more we can understand that story from people, the closer the connection is, the more likely they are to join us rather than take a job, you know, in a non-social care setting. So do you think, you know, sort of kind of thinking about sort of audits and stuff like that, how, how would you do that? So you're sort of almost describing having some sort of audit process. Is that what you're sort of saying? Yeah, absolutely. I think the um, you need to look at the what's an optimised candidate process. And there isn't really, as I put in the book, there's not like one one flow that I would say, oh, you've got to do it exactly this way because people will be approaching you from different sources and that they have different expectations. So, for example, if you're uh, if you inquire on Facebook, you are expecting 
a response almost immediately because that's yep. the expectation. And so if you placed an ad on on Facebook or you had a post, someone responded over the weekend and you left it 48 hours to respond, then, you know, they're going to be like, what? You lost them. Yeah. Uh, uh, but there's there's there are more forgiving sources as well where, you know, I mean, uh, employee referral being an example where you've got a friend there. So there's more of a kind of buffer and protection, but that doesn't mean you should take uh, a long time to respond. I mean, we, we've looked at the average time to respond. It's very difficult to get a real number on this, but as a guide, if you have a dedicated recruiter and a very small minority of providers have a dedicated recruiter, then the response time is about a day. If you don't have one, it's nine days or never. And I think this is wow. a real opportunity mm. for us. Um, and, you know, if you're on it, you can respond within 30 minutes would be what I would expect now. And I think that's what the market expects. Uh, so so that's just one example. And that's think, hard, look, isn't it? That's it, hard, isn't it? It, 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 you know, is, it is hard. Yeah. But, so you um, almost need to kind of think about, you know, if I don't have a dedicated recruiter, how how am I going to do this? You know, you almost have a bit of a rota of people who are going to be, you know, I am the recruitment responder today. You know that that it's mm. a it it because I know uh, I was a registered manager. It was something I did something every. It was I made a little rule for myself. I did something every day around recruitment because that was the only way that I felt that I was in control of what was happening. So it would be something different. But there was something every single day and it could be something small or it could be something that I could spend spend a couple of hours on it just but I just made it my role every single day I would do something around recruitment whatever that was it may be putting an advert in a Paris magazine or you know there could be so many different things but every day I did something so yeah and I think you know I would I would associate or I'm sure many of your listeners associate recruitment with pain particularly things like you know no shows are particularly a frustrating thing and yeah. so you don't associate it with fun and it, it you know and it's uh, you have to re- you have to keep trying to get hold of people so so we know um that you know it can take a number of attempts before you get hold of someone particularly if you phone them and they don't recognize your number uh, they won't respond so texting is very much this the 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 way forward here not just sending an email and I think we'll come on to this later, perhaps the human aspect, the relationship aspect of social care means that we need to maintain the human touch. So I'm watching with interest, you know, AI and the impact it's having or starting to have on potentially on the on the recruitment process. And I am really cautious because if a relationship centric person who's a family carer gets put into an chatbot scenario for too long, I would be like, there's no real people here. I'm gone. Yeah. Yeah. Talk about no shows. What can you do to prevent? So you <laughs> mentioned texting. Is there other things you can do? Yeah. I mean, I think the starting point really is value. If you've got your values-based recruiting sorted out, then your no-shows sort themselves out. So um, if you've got people that are connected to the company that have a, you know, feel valued and interested and this job is right for them, even if they lack confidence, I think that's the first thing to say. That's where you need the source needs to be right. The people you're uh, asking to come to interview need to be right. So the stronger the connection, the better. 
uh, if you have a no particular connection with them, you need to build that connection in the telephone interview or the interactions that you have. And that means listening to their story, for example, uh, and giving them confidence. And there's a lot of people coming out of the, uh, you know, from not working, let's say people, parents who might have been looking after children, uh, family carers, they are frightened often of an interview, haven't had one for a long time. So we need to de-stress it. Uh, and and make them feel that this is not going to be a trial of like questions with a lamp shining in their eyes. You know, this sort of got to make it more like a chat. And I think um, so. But practical things, texting, good luck um, to you using their name and your name saying, oh, you'll be meeting me tomorrow. You know, I'm Pia. Um, good luck. Uh, do, you know, do you know where you're coming and all this kind of thing? Yeah. Reserving them a parking space, telling them there's a parking space reserved if they are driving, you know, removing stress from it. And then I think the timing is important, too. So there was some work done in the States that found first thing in the morning, but particularly five o'clock at the end of the day, 20 percent more likely people were going to show up. Right. I was I was listening to a, another podcast and somebody was talking about sending the the questions in advance um, to to people, which I you know my initial thought was like oh can't do that, but actually I I reflected on afterwards and I thought well if you are really anxious and and it's not really about catching people out, it's more about getting that getting a good answer and yes of course somebody could Google it and said but hopefully you know the follow up questions you will ask will will help you weave that out you know I, I think it's a really good idea to send questions in advance and also if you've got you know if you if you have um, anxiety you know being able to to know in advance what's going to be asked would be really useful wouldn't it. Yeah, I think particularly if you use values-based interviewing techniques. So what you're looking yeah. for is, is lived examples of something that they've done and how they felt and how they reacted. So it's not a standard, you know, uh, question and answer. Like, you know, I think a lot of the interview questions that you probably listeners have are a photocopied sheet from 1974. No one knows why you ask these questions and no one knows what the right answer is. So I think values-based <laughs> interviewing is certainly something I would encourage because you, it's very specific to the person and you want to get behind the why and, yeah. you know, and also we might find that our questions are rather biased towards people already with care sector experience. And that's a problem. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. So, I was interested um, in what you said about the text as well. Um, so would would a tip be for, for managers maybe to text people in the morning of the interview, just saying, you know, looking forward to seeing you later today as almost like a reminder? Oh, yeah, I think absolutely. I mean, I think the day before is 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 good timing, but even on the day, it, 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 yeah, absolutely. Any kind of communication and reach out. And I, I've seen people sending, if they send a follow-up email, having a little video of them, you know, which you can do very easily on your phone, just saying, you know, hi, Wendy, I'm Neil. You'll be interviewing with me today or tomorrow. Can't wait to see you. It's not breaking down the barriers because mm. I do feel, and I don't have you know, um, quantitative evidence for this, but just from hanging around and talking to lots of people is that I think a lot of people are fearful and you know almost the right people for social care are the ones that question themselves and think I yeah. couldn't do this job and that means you probably could do the job yeah because you're thinking oh you know um would I be good enough you know you've got you're holding the the role in high esteem and I think you know just giving people the confidence to give it a go uh and we, we would we would be much better off yeah, just you mentioned right at the beginning when we start to chat that this the, the book, uh, the old new edition of the book, it has a big focus on retention. 
just thinking about retention, what are the sort of kind of quick wins? What are the things that people can do in terms of if they are, I don't know, developing a retention action plan or, you know, they're thinking about, well, you know, I need to retain my staff so I don't have to recruit so much. What are the quick wins? Well, uh, yeah, I think I list 10 in the book, uh, my favourites. So I'm not going to go through all 10. But uh, I mean, I think particularly we know that the majority of our staff turnover problem is in the first 90 days. And probably, as we mentioned, there's a there's an issue in the first day because people will make their mind up if they've made a mistake or not in that very first few moments. So I strongly advise uh, to putting together a welcome program. It doesn't have to be grand. It's just simple gestures that would show that people are valued and welcomed. And you can start that before they've even started sending them welcome card home was something I saw was it Australia I can't remember where I saw that but I've told lots of people about it and I get loads of feedback about what a great idea and it's something really simple that says we can't wait for you to join right so I'm going to come in with a smile on my face feeling like I'm I'm valued but one of my favorite things uh, again in fact this ends up in an argument uh, often is uh, I say you should ask during the application process for their favorite chocolate bar (laughs) <laughs> and then buy that, you know, for them and have and give it to them in a little goodie bag if you want when they join. And I innocently said it can't be bounty because that's just offensive. And then it kicks <laughs> off with some, I hope there aren't any bounty lovers on the call. <laughs> really, some people have absolutely no idea that twirls are the best and they seem deluded. So I think there's a whole there's a whole welcome program. And I and I think as well, you know, writing letters home, long long-term recruitment, uh, retention. Is, is about reinforcing appreciation. You know, we don't often, we, we don't have the uh, ability to perhaps pay as much as we would love to pay in many cases. So it's not, a, it's not, a, well, we can't do much about that. It's about people who've chosen this calling to, you know, regularly appreciate and acknowledge that through recognition methods and through appreciation methods. And writing a note home is very powerful because that goes to the family if there is a family and the partner and the friends see it and what you're doing then is building goodwill with those people who might influence to say why are you doing that job you know it's when you could do something else and they don't understand that that person has those kind of psychological intrinsic rewards that only social care can give yeah and that's one more quite a long thing long-term things the employers can do I think um, my, one of my favourites is uh, is peer mentoring, of course. That's a P-W-E-R, not P-I-A. <laughs> uh, and uh, I think that is supremely powerful. It not only helps those people joining, and we need more people new to the care sector, so giving them structured support is important. But what it also does is for those pe- more experienced uh, care staff, it gives them... Uh, you know, kind of a, a way of learning and uh, adding to their job. And um, and I think that's really, really powerful. And there's lots of research I saw in the US home care sector about just how powerful and influential that is. And I think that also came out of your Secrets of Success report as yeah. one of the things. So I'm like a massive fan of of uh, peer mentoring. And and then I think, you know, well, a couple of others really briefly. One, one would be um, interpersonal skills training, sort of relationship centric training which i think we ignore when actually social care is all about relationships and we don't let's say train staff on active listening brain free language the ability to manage conflict and stress and stressful times with clients and residents and stress between colleagues and with supervisors and i think this is a huge area of opportunity to and and i actually saw some training materials in the us read them just read them once and it improved my relationship with 
with my son, who I always blamed for everything. And actually, it turned out it wasn't his fault after all. But, you know, you can actually it can actually help people in their personal lives. And yeah. I think what what social care is really people is a vocation. And we need to look at the whole person and, and we can support often giving and caring people are giving and caring in their private lives. They have a lot of conflict and a lot of guilt. There are probably a lot of people wanting some of their time uh, and they have often you know, huge responsibilities and can have a lot of challenges in their life and helping them navigate that with with skills that also help us as employers and help the clients. I, I think we should do way more of it. Yeah. To kind of have that part of your training plan that, you know, thinking about those soft skills, what are the what are the things you're needing, and you know, trying to think about well, what how are we going to make sure that that this is used as part of retention, isn't it? You know, so making sure your managers, anybody who are you know have any kind of managerial experience, um, responsibility, are are trained to to speak to people to manage stress to all the things you just said but I think not just the people managers either um you know one of the one of the things we talk to frontline care workers about a lot is about how they communicate with the people um who they're providing care and support to you know how they interact with them but I think often what we don't say to people is how do you carry those same values and skills into your interaction with your your colleagues that are in yeah. your own in your own team and i think for many of us um sitting listening listening to this today many people will think about why they've left jobs previously and mm. often the reason that you've left a job previously is not because you didn't like the work but because you maybe found particular colleagues difficult to interact with or you know sometimes the person who maybe is supervising you but often it, it, it's the colleagues it's the peers yeah. that you you work with and I think you know we don't always think that we should apply some of the same values around person-centeredness and and kindness and respect that we treat the people who use services with to our colleagues as as well and I think we just yeah. don't think about that sometimes no really important isn't it and in terms of kind of careers, I suppose that's the other thing in, in, with with yeah. retention. Think, you know, being, you know, talking to people about what do they want from their careers? Because I agree, Wendy, you know, a lot of time people leave jobs because of, not because of the job, but because of the people. But there is a career aspect as well. And we want, you know, people to have careers in social care, don't we really? Oh, yeah. And when I was in Europe, uh, I saw the, the most common job title is not care worker at all. It's uh, auxiliary nurse. And there is a, you know, very, it's encouraged to have training and there's a pathway and, uh, um, you know, without getting political, you know, we decided whenever it was 1990, we don't want state enrolled nurses or whatever. And I think, I think social care can be the kind of training ground for nurses. Not everyone wants to be a nurse. I understand that. But, you know, even for me, who I, I think if I came into social care thinking I could learn valuable medical skills and relationship skills mm. and now I think we need to make an offer particularly to the younger generation which is like okay well what skills are you going to teach me how is this going to help me with my life even if you're not with social care forever I think we yeah. should be really welcoming for the period of time we have them and if we could say to them you will get nowhere else 
we will give you uh, all of those relationship skills. And I think, you know, the younger generation, oh, sound really old if I say the younger generation, but all of us now spending too much time on our phones, you know, the kids are in bedrooms on their phone, electronically communicating. They're not talking over the garden fence with the next door neighbors, interacting with older people. And we've lost something. And I think social care can be uh, the place that, you know, even if you do it for a couple of years, like sort of national service, we will give you relationship skills for life. This will help you in your personal relationships and in interactions with everybody in your life. Yeah. And we will can give you, you know, useful medical skills and other, uh, and other harder skills. That basket, that offer, that basket of skills is super compelling to people. And, yeah. and, and then we add on top of that, you're actually making a difference to society and it's you know you're and you're really helping kind of create this kind of um uh, social capital back into the country like that's what we need to be selling yeah i suppose having those conversation quite early on somebody joining you saying well what you know what can we do for you you know what's your what what would you like your career to look like in social care and there's so many aspects to it that you know it's there's you know the kind of a leadership or there's as you say you know kind of clinical skills but there's also um you know so many other other skills that you can kind of enhance on you know um and just sort of kind of talk to people and then obviously there's some people who say well actually what I really want is to work somewhere that I'm supported and I'm, you know, feel valued and I have a voice um, and I, and I don't want to move my career onto any further. And that, that's fine. We've had mm -hmm. the conversation and that's fine, but if they are, and there will be staff within your, your team, they will have ambitions and it's about having an open, honest conversations. And, and even if that means, well, in five years time, I'm likely to leave you because I'm going to go and do, then you know that, but you can, you can utilize them while you're, while they're with you. And you, you rather have them working for you those five years than they're not working for you those five years, don't you really? So it's just really yeah. think having have those upfront conversations uh, at the start of somebody working for you. So, Neil, we, we have our time for care slot in every episode. Um, so I want to ask <laughs> okay. you the same question that we ask all of our guests. Right. What's your most time-saving tip that you could share with people? Oh, well, um, actually, it's one that seems rather odd, but it's um, meditation. And right. I'm, a, I'm a newbie to meditation. And I thought, I don't have time for meditation. You know, I'm super busy. And actually, a lot of the time, I'm totally ineffective uh, and inefficient. And meditation helps also reduce stress and anxiety, which, you know, I know listeners, if you're registered managers, will be familiar with, with that. And I think less time spent worrying about things, and I'm talking about myself personally, uh, and the more time you can spend doing the things you want to do. So so the science on meditation, and, you know, I'm, I was very sceptical, is, is, um, is that, it, you know, by concentrating on your breathing and whatever, just having a bit of time where, you know, the phone is off, uh, which has been really hard for me to do, and, and sort of just focusing um, and thinking about the day, it's really helping uh to the, the my efficiency through the day and I, I my focus has improved I'm, I'm i'm still not very good at it but um uh, just having that time to to yourself instead of diving in and trying to fix everything actually gives you time back and makes you more efficient and and less stressed so um i think yeah reflection time is a really really good time saver 
Excellent. And I think managers often, you know, feel like, well, as you said, we haven't got time for that, or I feel guilty about taking that five minutes. But actually, if you think about the fact that that five minutes might make you more productive for the rest of the day, then, you know, it's it's time well spent. I've got a Mm. final question for you, um, Mm. which is imagine we're in a lift on the 10th floor going down with a group of registered managers and before everyone gets out at the bottom, what you you want to tell them what you think is the most important your key message to leave them with what would that be neil okay so how many floors i've got 10 floors 10 floors so you need to be quick (laughs) (laughs) right okay (laughs) well i i think you know from all of my learning in this topic and i'm still learning i think the key to building a loyal and high performing workforce um there's three there's three pillars really uh and we're probably on floor eight now um is number one is recruiting only those people with the right values and never compromising even if you really need someone because it's going to go wrong if there's very low job attachment so always uh stay true to those values would be my first point and we're probably halfway down now so then nurturing um their key relationships so we talked a little bit about this before but but a, a care worker, if we can use that generic term, has key relationships that we need to nurture and, and protect. One is with the supervisor. So we talked about how you could do that. Their colleagues as well. Those are the first two. And then their clients or residents, which is usually a very strong one anyway. And then their family support network. So be aware as a registered manager of those four invisible connections and look and see whether you think there's weakness somewhere or how you can help strengthen them and sort of refill their emotional cup. And then finally, I think I would say, as we're coming down to the ground floor, um, regularly appreciating people and celebrating their contribution. And if you're a busy registered manager, it's easy to, to forget to do that. But that quiet word of thanks and well done is the reason that they will stay. So that is yeah. more important than filling in another CQC form. Oh, you'll probably have to edit that out now. Um, so, you know, I think people have chosen a life of service uh, and we in society should be visibly grateful and and, um, and managers are at the forefront. They have the most opportunity to do that. So uh, celebrate and write a note home. And um, I think the lift pinged and we're going out now. Yeah, the diar- diary in those those thank yous if, if you're like let's forget which the sort of person i am i'd forget so i died it diary in this is diary. your thank you thank you hour thank you that's all really very useful thank you so much so wendy what really stood out to you today I think one of the things that stood out for me particularly is is that Neil really was emphasising the importance of retention, not just recruitment. Because I think if you focus on recruitment, but actually you're losing staff as quick as you're recruiting them, then you're still going to have those vacancies. And I think that reminds me really of um, the importance of the launch of our updated value-based recruitment toolkit and the toolkit covers the five A's models so focusing right through about how do you share your values how do you use them to attract people to come and work for you how do you build them into the application process and demonstrate them to your applicants how do you assess them but also how do you build those values into your day-to-day interactions with um with your staff and the other thing that that um struck me really was what neil was saying about the best or one of the best sources of recruitment being family and friends of those people 
that already work for you because the chances are if the people work for you have got the right values their friends and family will also have the right values for social care as well and that just reminded me about the importance of something like the care friends app and how helpful that can be um, not just around recruitment but also about recognizing and rewarding staff performance as well as is finding that hidden talent or those passive job seekers in the community yeah. so some great stuff there i thought yeah we did cover a huge amount i think what's really stood out for me was just thinking about that um the, the higher versus the number of hours that the person's going to work for you so i think if if i think if i was listening to this i'd i'd be looking at doing some sort of recruitment audit and just really kind of thinking about all the staff you recruited over the last maybe six months and then look at how many hours have you got out and what's working, what's not working, um, and what are you getting getting results out of. Um, I will usually talk about another Skills for Care resource, but I'm going to take this time um, just to uh, talk about uh, listening to podcasts so we know that 85% of you that's listening live today haven't listened to uh, a care exchange podcast before so first of all just to to let you know that as I said at the beginning this is the uh, first episode of series four uh, there's three, three previous uh, series to uh, listen to so 30 odd episodes that you can go back and, and listen to um, we created the care exchange um, as a way another way for us to talk to you as managers but really it was about talking to other managers working in social care getting their best practice about how they're doing things um you know we've had topics around cqc recruitment quality leadership so if all those things would be of interest to you go back and have a have a listen to the 30 odd episodes that that we've already recorded um, I know 60% of you those listening today have not listened to a podcast ever, so I'm going to do a little bit of a masterclass on how to um, listen to podcasts. It really isn't complicated. Uh, your option one is go to the Skills for Care website, and we'll put uh, links uh, how to how you know where to find it is on on the website under Register Manage Support, and then you can listen online. If you do that, you do need to be next to your computer or your, your your phone, however, and you need to be connected to that. The other way of doing it, which is the way most people listen to podcasts, is that they, if you have a smartphone, you download a podcast app and you most likely already have one on your smartphone. So it could be Spotify, it could be iTunes, Amazon Music, or you, there's a, a particular podcast platform called Podbean. So any of those you can do. Um, you would then, uh, if you haven't got one, download one of those. And if you already have it, you're there. Um, search for the Care Exchange um, uh, and you will see us come up. You'll see the logo um, and you didn't just follow that, that, uh, that. And then you can see all the different episodes. So all those 30 odd episodes that's available. Um, you can set up notifications so every time a new episode comes out you will you'll get notification or you can decide not to do that my my top tip would be if you're going somewhere and you're going to be you want to listen to the podcast you can easily download the episodes you can listen without the internet so if you're going going somewhere where you're not going to be having wi-fi uh, it's really easy there's like three dots and you press that and it says download and you'll download that um 
Personally, I listen to lots of podcasts and I do that when I'm walking my dog, if I'm doing uh, a sort of kind of manual task like gardening or ironing or, um, or washing up or something along those lines. I listen to podcasts um, while I'm doing that and I find it really uh, interacting. I, you know, pick up loads of good ideas and obviously I will encourage you to listen to The Care Exchange, but there are lots of other uh, podcasts out there. Uh, just finally, before uh, finishing talking about podcasts, we talked about show notes already. Um, again, when you are uh, listening to your podcast through uh, one of those apps I talked about earlier, you will see underneath there will be a bit of a summary about what we talked about. And then there will be links to the skills for care resources that we've talked about. That will always also be there on the website. So that's it for now. Uh, thank you very much for joining us in this special episode of the Care Exchange. Thank you, Neil, very much for joining us today. It was really thank useful you. to hear from you. Uh, thank you, everyone. Um, and thank you as if you joined us live. We hope you have enjoyed this episode and you'll continue to listen to the Care Exchange podcast. Bye for now. Bye.